Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign in the midst of all the trials and sufferings that we face in this life. We do pray now that through your word you would prepare us to face those sufferings, that we may continue to entrust ourselves to you, that we may continue to commit ourselves to doing good uh, as we wait for the glory that's to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what place do you have for suffering in the Christian life? What place do you have for suffering in the Christian life? Uh, there's a very common teaching in many churches today that if you become a Christian, then things is going to go well for you in your life. God will shower all of his blessings upon you. You'll live a happy, a victorious Christian life. He'll give you a boyfriend. You'll get straight A's in school. You'll never get sick. Uh, or if you do, you'll always recover. Uh, your sick relatives will experience miraculous healings in their lives. You'll overcome all the sins in your life and you'll have a good career, good money, good car, happy family and everything else. In other words, become a Christian. You will never suffer. You will be blessed, name and, and claim it. And if you pray and you don't, you have faith and you don't have doubts, you can speak things into existence, health, wealth, prosperity. I'm talking about the prosperity gospel. And in mild forms or extreme forms, it is all over the place in Christian circles. Now, perhaps it's not uh, preached blatantly here in SJGC. After all, we're a conservative uh, brethren church this morning. But we might think in our hearts that somehow God owes us. If we've trusted in Jesus, if we've served his church faithfully for our lives, we've given our money and time, then maybe God should bless us materially. God should bless us with healing. And maybe I'll just get a little bit bitter or angry when things don't work out in life as I hope they will. Now, on the other hand, there are other Christians that you will find who advocate for a view of the Christian life that is only about suffering. Perhaps they live in a monastery and it's all about self-denial and self-affliction, what we call asceticism. But on this view of the Christian life, enjoying things is wrong. It's wrong to go on holidays. It's wrong to go to the movies. The Christian life should be all one of sacrifice, all one of suffering with no joy and no happiness ever. It begs the question, what place should we have for suffering in the Christian life? Is it all prosperity? Is it all suffering? Or is it something else? Well, today I want us to see as we finish the book of 1 Peter, that the Christian view of suffering is suffering now and glory later. Suffering now and glory later. We expect suffering, but we persevere through that suffering with joy because of the glory that we are looking forward to. Now, that's how Wayne Grudem summarizes this book. He says that 1 Peter, I think it's on the screen, he says it's written to encouraged readers to grow in their trust in God and their obedience to him throughout their lives, but especially when they suffer. Another commentator, McClay, he, he agrees. He says, Peter has a clear aim of helping embattled Christians to keep following Christ all the way to glory. Do you see what they're saying? The Christian life is one where we should expect suffering. There will be battles, but it is glory that is the final end. Now, as I said at the first talk, we don't know exactly what kind of suffering they're going through. Most scholars don't think it's the kind of Nero feeding people to the lions or domination later in the 90s or Trajan uh, in the second century where Christians are being burnt alive and all these kinds of things. But the context certainly suggests that there is persecution from the wider general population. There is verbal, uh, verbal abuse. There is discrimination and severe suffering, a distinct possibility to come. But whatever the suffering is, we've seen Paul, Peter is writing this letter to encourage suffering Christians to stand firm in their faith, especially when following Jesus becomes difficult. We've seen Peter's stated purpose in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring to you 
that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter wants us to understand the true grace of God. That is, he wants us to have a a right understanding of the Christian life so that we're not going to be disillusioned or, or, or disappointed or give up when we face various sufferings in the Christian life. Because if you have wrong expectations for the Christian life, well, that has awful consequences. See, this is a problem with prosperity teaching. If you're told it's all blessing now, health, wealth and prosperity, then what happens if you claim healing in faith and then you're not healed. Or what happens if you're, you're praying in faith for your sick relative to get better and, and then they don't? What happens if the situation gets worse and worse instead of getting better? Well, you're going to start to doubt, aren't you? Maybe God is not really good or maybe God is not there or, or maybe I don't have enough faith. That's why God is doing this to me. And so instead of standing firm in the true grace of God, you're going to be shaken in your faith and you might even give up. See, the Christian life is long. The Christian life is hard. And if we're going to persevere to the end, we need to have a right understanding of the place of suffering in the Christian life. Now, we've seen so far uh, that Peter has, said, has reminded us of our identity. We're God's elect exiles, chosen by God. We're aliens in this world. He's reminded us of our hope. We have an imperishable inheritance that we're looking forward to in heaven, the hope of eternal life. He's reminded us of the holy lives that we are saved for, that we can stand out in this world and bear witness to him as his holy royal priesthood. Because Peter knows Things don't always go well for Christians. If we are God's holy people, then sometimes on our journey, things are going to get very hard. Look what Peter says in our passage this morning, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, don't be tricked by false teachers or false churches who are telling you that if you become a Christian, God is going to bless you, and that means that nothing bad is ever going to happen in your life. Rather, he says the opposite. Expect suffering. Don't be surprised by fiery trials when they come. Around the world, in, in Syria, in Iraq, Muslims put Christians to death. In Western countries, Christians are called bigoted, homophobic, and anti-women for opposing abortion and euthanasia and same-sex marriage. In China and North Korea, Christians are thrown uh, into labor camps or prisons for following Jesus. And even here in Malaysia, you're not allowed to preach to certain people. You're not allowed to build church buildings. You're not allowed to have Bibles with, with the word Allah in it and all kinds of things. Some of us will face opposition from our family and our friends and our colleagues for following Jesus as Savior. Peter wants us to have right expectations of the Christian life. As we live as God's elect exiles, his holy people in this world, it is inevitable that we will suffer. And sometimes those sufferings will be very difficult to face. But what will keep us going is the knowledge that it's suffering now, but glory later. Well, let's begin to reorient our expectations for the shape of the Christian life. The first point this morning, do good, but expect to suffer. Do good, but expect to suffer. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The third word finally here shows us we've come to the final section of the book, and he's continuing the theme of the previous chapters, holy living, unity, love, Humility in how we relate to other people. We are to care for each other in sufferings. As we saw in that song, we're pilgrims going hand in hand. We're going through this journey in the Christian life together. And so as we suffer uh, together, we are to care for each, other, for each other and help each other, put each other's needs above our own in humility. And in how we relate to others, verse 9, we're told, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
And this offering of blessing instead of revenge is echoing the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Luke 6, 27, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So verse 9 is saying, God loves righteous people. He, he blesses those who repay evil with good. That's the whole point of Psalm 34, which you see he quotes there in verses 10 to 12. Let me read it. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, see, if you want to experience the blessing of God, the Bible's uh, overall message is that you must pursue righteousness. You see, you must turn from evil. You must do good. You must seek peace with those who harm you. You leave the judgment in the end to God because God does, is not a God who rewards sin. God is not a God who blesses evil. His eyes are on the righteous. His eyes are against the evil. But does the fact that God puts his blessing on the righteous mean that we'll never suffer as Christians? Is that what it means to experience his blessing, that you never suffer? Well, not at all. Verse 9, in fact, assumes we will experience evil. We will be reviled. The point he's making rather here is that we can be blessed in our suffering. We can be blessed through the sufferings that we face. Have a look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So saying, well, generally speaking, if you seek to do the right thing, you're not going to suffer for it. There are no laws that are against being good. But there are some times in the Christian life when you will suffer for doing good, as we've seen. Like you tell your fellow students not to photocopy their textbooks. That's not going to go down well. You tell your colleagues you're not staying back at work to help because you have your Bible study class on this evening. You tell your parents, instead of pursuing your career any, any further, you're actually going to quit your job and do full-time ministry. They're probably not going to like that. You share the gospel with certain people, they don't want to hear it. Well, there are certain times like this, as you do good, that you will suffer for it. Now, there's the ancient Chinese proverb, or I think, you can correct me later, the nail that sticks up gets knocked down. Is that a Chinese proverb? Well, if it's not, I made it up. <laughs> the point is, you stand up as a Christian, you will get knocked down. No matter how righteous you are, it's inevitable that suffering will follow. And so the temptation, of course, is to not stand out, to not, uh, to not be different, to stop sharing your faith so that you won't get any unwanted attention from people around you. But Peter encourages the opposite. He says you must live a righteous life it will lead to suffering as you do so. But in and through that suffering, you will be blessed. Well, verse 14, he says, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. So Peter says, as you face these threats of, of suffering or opposition in the Christian life, you need to remember who is really in charge. That is, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And so no matter how scary or how powerful the opposition against us may be, we must remember that Jesus is more powerful. So Peter says, don't, don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be silent. Be ready to speak up for your faith. Be ready to bear the name of Christian with courage and boldness. Imagine you are a Christian. You are living in Afghanistan, maybe. Uh, the Taliban come to your house. They knock on the door and they tell you, if you don't become a Muslim, then I'm going to kill you. What are you going to do? Would you 
convert to save your life? Or would you be faithful to the Lord Jesus and meet your fate? Now, I guess most of us here are not going to face such a drastic situation. I certainly don't wish that for anyone here. But Peter does expect that all of us will stand out as Christians, and therefore there will be times when people will ask you, what do you believe as a Christian? They'll put you on the spot, and you need to be ready to answer. We need to be ready to explain the hope that we have, not to shy away in the corner, but to own the name of Jesus with boldness and courage, because Jesus is Lord. So what about you this morning? Do you have courage to live the Christian life publicly? Are you ready to share your faith with others? Do people see that you are different? And when they ask you why, are you bold to tell them why you are different as a Christian? Can you explain the hope for the future that you have that makes you live so differently now? But we are to be bold. We are to answer, always ready to share our faith. And we are to be careful to do it with a right manner too. He continues in verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, it's, it's not about winning the argument. It's not about proving that you're right and you've got the right religion and all of that. It's about seeking to win others over, not, not only with our words, but, but with our manner of life. Now, these words, these verses here are quite popular for those who do apologetics. Uh, they say, look, we need to be ready to give an answer for our faith, uh, to, to answer various difficult uh, questions and so on, and to do it in a winsome uh, and loving way. And, and, of course, it's right that they can use these verses to support apologetics. But the thing we must understand is Peter's not writing for an apologetics conference as he writes 1 Peter. He's writing for all Christians, for a church. And so sharing our faith, giving an answer for the hope that we have, it's not something for just some special people who really know how to answer the difficult questions. This is for all of us. The question really is, are we really really willing to stand up for our faith, to own the name of Jesus, to share what we believe. Well, Jesus sets us the perfect example of embracing a life of righteous suffering. You see it there in verse 17. He says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I want you to imagine this morning a girl named Hui Yin, made up the name. Uh, her grandmother hypothetically recently died. And so the whole family is very sad. But especially Hui Yin, because she's the only Christian in the family. And so it's a Taoist funeral. Uh, and at the funeral, her family members are pressuring her uh, to bow down before her grandmother, uh, to offer a, a joss stick uh, as she does so in, in honour and worship of her grandmother. But she knows idolatry is wrong and she's afraid of what's going to happen when she tells her parents she's not going to participate. What do you think will happen to Hui Ying? in that situation. Probably slander, probably rejection, probably told that she doesn't really love the family, that she doesn't really honour her grandmother on, on this such an important day. It's going to be a very difficult situation to face. Maybe some of you have been in a situation like that before. But that's what it means to be a Christian, you see. Often as a Christian, you'll stand out and you need to make a stand. You need to be willing to open your mouth and say, no, I, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Lord. And embrace the suffering that will inevitably follow. Peter encourages us here. Remember Jesus, because he too faced unjust suffering and he didn't shy away. 
Uh, Jesus, the perfect son of God, he, he never sins, and yet he suffered. Jesus willingly died in our place. He, he took our punishment for our sins so we could have eternal life. What happened to Jesus was the most extreme example of unjust suffering, but he went through it for you and me, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And God didn't leave him in the grave, but God raised him in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean he left his body behind. It means that he, he ushered in the new age of the kingdom of God. Jesus is that example of unjust suffering and, and, and bearing it faithfully. And, and although some of the, the following verses are some of the most difficult in the Bible, that is the point of verses 19 to 22 that follow. Jesus has been raised victorious over all. Or verse 19, it says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Who are the spirits in prison that Jesus is preaching in after he's resurrected? Well, they're likely the same disobedient angels that are mentioned in 2 Peter and Jude. Look at 2 Peter 2 verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and continues, well, you're not going to escape either if you reject Jesus. Uh, Jude writes in verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I take it his, both all these verses are referring to the incident in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, where we're told that the sons of God, just talking about angels, came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Uh, and so angels cross their proper uh, proper boundaries in these improper relationships with human beings. And it's an event that is so evil in God's sight that it prompts God to send the flood and wipe out uh, the entire world. The risen Jesus goes to preach to these spirits in prison. Now, I don't, he's not preaching salvation to them. He's not saying, oh, you're all saved now because I've died and risen. No. He goes to announce his victory. His victory over evil, his victory over death itself. Now, they will face eternal judgment from the resurrected uh, Jesus. The risen Jesus, he announces judgment on those who are evil, but on the other hand, he's the God who saves the righteous. There's those like Noah, at the same time, who was saved from that great judgment through the flood foreshadowing the way that Christians will be saved from the final judgment too. Uh, and so he says in verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Peter clarifies quite quickly here, he's not saying that baptism itself saves you, and so if you believed in Jesus but you're not baptized yet, then you're not saved. No, it's, the water is just water, he says the water here is, a, is an act, or going through the waters of baptism is a, symbolizes an act of faith, a, a trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is what saves you. So do you see the point, I, I hope? For disobedient, disobedient angels will suffer for their evil, but Jesus suffers for good to bring salvation to those who trust in him. Those who suffer for evil will be punished. Those who suffer for good will be saved in the end. Uh, and, and the risen Lord Jesus will be exalted as Lord of all. So verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So do you see in the, in, in the, in the lens of eternity, the light of eternity, the way of Jesus is much better. Yes, following Jesus will involve suffering, but it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. If you suffer for doing evil, then the result is, well, punishment and eternity. If you suffer for doing good like, like Jesus or like, like Noah, well, that's the path that leads in the end to salvation, the path to glory. 
And so Peter then urges us to follow Christ's example and not the world's example. Follow Christ's example, not the world's example. To choose suffering for good instead of suffering for evil. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter doesn't mean here that our, our sinful nature will somehow disappear when we turn to the Lord Jesus. What he means is that Jesus chose the suffering of the cross instead of giving in to his sinful desires. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what we are to do as, as well. We are to leave behind that old life, to say, not my will be done, but, but now your will be done. You be in charge of my life. And so the next verses is going to explain what it means uh, uh, by sin and, and living in sin, and what it means by living according to his will, the new life that he wants us to live. So first, the old life, verse 3. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. See, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, sleeping with those we're not married to, getting drunk, being addicted to shopping, and, and all the rest of it, that's what all the people around us are doing. And just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that it's right that they are doing it. Everyone else may be addicted to pornography. It doesn't mean that it's right. We're not to give in to peer pressure. We're not to go along with the flow. We're to resist. We're to resist the after-work drunkenness. We're to resist the pornography. We're to resist the idolatrous greed that always wants more and more and more. That's the old life. That's suffering. You're going to result in suffering for evil. We're to say, no. That's, that's wrong. I, I'm not going to do those things. But of course, when you do that, you're going to suffer for it. Verse 4 says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living. They heap abuse on you. Because the thing is, when you refuse to participate, when you say, no, I think that's wrong. Well, what it, it simply highlights the evil that they are doing. And people don't like their evil to be exposed. People don't like their wrong things to be brought out into the light. And that's why it's really important for us to have a good church and good Christian friends. It's not that going to a church makes you a Christian, uh, but it's really important for you because we really need other Christians around us to encourage us and help us to keep living Jesus' way in a world that uh, does not live his way. Uh, they need our help. We need their help. Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to, to go along with what the world around us is doing. We might give in when the temptation comes. But here is a truth we must keep fixed in our minds. Verse 5 says, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Sure, you can engage in reckless, wild living now. You can engage in all kinds of sins now. But one day, Jesus will hold you to account for everything you have ever thought, said, or done. Jesus will judge those who have done evil. So if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, Please understand this. Living in pleasure and rejection of God may make you temporarily happy, but ultimately it will result in the judgment of God. Don't do it. It's not worth it in the end. And if you're a Christian here, don't be jealous of the non-Christian as if you're somehow missing out in life you're missing out because you're not sleeping around. You're missing out because you're not because you're saying no to pornography. You're missing out. Now, you're not missing out on anything except the destructive consequences of sin and the eternal judgment of God. That old life is over. We are done with sin. We are ready to suffer for good. 
So verse 6 says, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. That's a tricky verse, isn't it? I had to look at that a few times. What Peter means here uh, is that the fact that Christians have had the gospel preached to them doesn't stop them from experiencing physical death. Right? We are judged in the flesh the way all people are, and the judgment for sin is physical death, and we all will experience that. But the point is, that's not the end. Yes, we'll all experience physical death, but ultimately, Christians will live in the Spirit the way that God does. That is, they will be saved from the, from the final judgment to live eternally with God. All people will die, but the gospel will save those who believe. Do you see this, this eternal perspective as we, as we think about how to live in this world, whether we're going to stand up for following Jesus, whether we're going to say no to sin in our lives, it's, it's our view of the big picture, it's our view of eternity, which is going to help us to make the right decisions. Uh, verses 3 to 6 focus on the old life of sin, now verses 7 to 11 focus on the new life that we should embrace instead in view of this coming judgment of God. What is the new life we should live? Look at verse 7. We should serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And many of these qualities, we've seen them earlier in the letter. Self-control, love, generosity, willing hospitality. Hospitality means love of strangers. That is, you know, welcoming people like, you know, visiting preachers and their families, as you have done so wonderfully over this weekend. That is part of the new life that we are called to. Love, hospitality, generosity. And he adds in verse 10 the idea of Christian service. Look at verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if judgment day is coming, if God's going to call our, all of our lives into and assess what we have done, how should we live now? Well, you should use your life for ministry. That's what it's saying, isn't it? You should use whatever gifts God has given you for the upbuilding and service of God's people. Now, he doesn't mean just talking about serving in a church setting, you know, being on a roster, playing music or AV or whatever it is. Ministry includes a lot of other things. Ministry in the home, you know, ministry of motherhood, for example, or grandparenting, ministry in the workplace. But ministry, service of other people, uh, it's all in response to God's grace because whatever gifts we're given, they're not to make us important. After all, they're gifts. It's not that we're so wonderful. It's God is wonderful that he's given us the gifts. And we wouldn't keep them for ourselves. They're given to us so that we may use them for the upbuilding of others. And in a world that does not know Christ, some of us need to devote ourselves it says, to the teaching of God's word, speaking oracles of God, perhaps in a full-time way, though I know that's not the common practice here, but certainly to maximize the time that you have to teach and preach the word of God, to, or, or to serve with the strength God provides to enable God's word to be taught to his people. In light of the coming judgment of God, that's what we need to do, isn't it? to see the gospel go forward. You see, the Christian life is ultimately about having a right perspective. It's about living in the light of eternity and not just living in the here and now. As long as you forget the future and just focus on what's happening right here and now, that's when you're very likely to be sucked into living life 
just like the people around you. It's that same eternal perspective that will help us to embrace and to live godly lives even when we suffer. We suffer now. We can suffer now because there is glory at the end. So let's return to chapter 4, verse 12. We looked at it at the beginning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's normal to suffer in the Christian life, to be insulted at work, rejected by our family, or to have those in power persecute us because we are Christians. Don't be surprised by that. And Peter tells us those trials are to test us, to test whether our faith is real or not. And Peter wants to assure us that the tables will turn one day. It's suffering now, it's glory later. Look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Notice you are blessed in and through your suffering because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer because it's God's plan that our lives will be mirroring Jesus' life. How did Jesus live? Suffering first, glory later. What's the shape of the Christian life? Suffering now, glory later. We are united with the Lord Jesus Christ as his people. We are living stones in his temple, united with him. And therefore, his story will become our story. Suffering now, glory later. And so we can rejoice in our sufferings now because we know that there is glory coming later. Now, just to clarify, in verse 15, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. It's not that, you know, all suffering is good. It's suffering for Jesus that is good. But verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. It's quite remarkable when you read some of the early Christian writers from the first few centuries. How they counted a privilege to suffer for Jesus. I mean, some of the some of the early church fathers, they were almost praying for the blessing of being martyred for Jesus. It's very odd uh, for, a, for a modern reader when you when you read it. But they recognize something right, don't they? It's an honor to bear the name of Jesus. It's a privilege to be called a Christian. That's no small thing, is it? And so we don't want to dishonor our suffering Savior who gave his life for us by shrinking back from what he's called us to do. And so in that sense now, suffering is our test too. Verse 17 says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not believe? the gospel of God. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So I think it's saying that our times of suffering test the genuineness of our faith. Our times of suffering test how much we really treasure Jesus and his gospel. It's not judgment for Christians in the sense that we're being punished or that we're going to somehow end up in, 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 in hell or something. No. Jesus has paid for all of our sins. Our future inheritance is secure, 100%. But as we go through our sufferings now, it's a test really. Are you Christian or not? And so Peter comes to his conclusion, verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's really a key verse in the book, a good summary of the book as a whole. We must recognize that suffering is God's will for the Christian. We often want to know what God's will is for our lives, don't we? What, what job we should take or where we should live or what ministry we should serve in. We don't often talk about this aspect of God's will. Part of God's will for us as Christians is that we will suffer. 
But so certain is our hope that we can face that suffering courageously, entrusting our lives to our Creator, and press on in doing the good that He has called us to do. Even if we must suffer, our souls are safe because glory awaits. Now, before Peter closes, he steps back to address the elders in the congregation, uh, but he does want the whole church to listen in on what he says. So verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I asked who the elders are in the church. Colin, uh, Terence, Jonathan, I believe you're all here. Uh, Peter addresses you as an equal, a fellow sojourner, fellow elder on the same journey of suffering to glory. And he reminds you that you've been given this church to care for. But it's not your church, it's God's church, the church that he bought with his pre the precious blood of his son. These precious sheep here are in your care. They will have many sufferings to face, many temptations to resist, many doubts that they must endure and struggles that they must go through. And God wants you to care for them, not because you have to, but because you want to, not for personal gain because you can get some reputation as a leader, but zealously seeking the good of others to your own detriment. And not as some kind of domineering dictator, but by example, showing how to walk the path by going a few steps ahead. Brothers, I hope you will take this charge very seriously with all the joys and pains that I know come with it. Because Peter reminds you, your suffering for the flock now will be rewarded with an unfading crown of glory later. Well, then a word to us all, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, uh, I guess that's everyone else here is young. If they are the elders, then you are all the young people. Wonderful. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, you are so blessed to have the elders that you have. People who deeply love you, who are thoroughly committed to your good and benefit, to teaching you and doing it so joyfully. Please be humble in following their good example. I mean, if we should submit to the authorities, if we should submit to our bosses at work, we should submit to our husbands, how much more should we submit to the men who have watch over our souls in the Lord? Of course, they're not always going to get it right. There's probably going to be many times they're going to fail or disappoint. They're only human after all. But these are the men that God has put over you in the Lord to watch over your souls. Be humble. Follow them. Because in those moments, the Christian life is the hardest. When you're there lying in the hospital and you're not sure you're going home. Or when you lose a loved one. Or you're at the and you're at the funeral, or you have been rejected by your family and you don't know what to do. You're mistreated by your boss. Guess what? These are the men who will be there for you when you need them the most. So treasure them. Submit to them. Well, as this camp draws to a close, then we come to the end of the letter. And I want to leave you with three final exhortations. They are the same exhortations that Peter leaves us with. Firstly, on this difficult journey as elect exiles, make sure you pray. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because 
he cares for you. If there's anything that you're worried about, anything you're concerned about, cast your worries on the Lord. Pray. Ask for his help. Ask him to keep you going as a Christian. Ask him to help you have the courage to bear his name. Ask him that he'll help you to glorify the good works he's called you to do. God loves his children, and we can be sure his powerful hand will lift us up in proper time. Make sure you pray. Secondly, watch out and stand firm. Verse 8, be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I don't know if you've watched any of those David Attenborough kind of nature documentaries, you know, with some glorious lion sizing up its prey and then gobbling it up. Uh, lions are nice to look at from 100 metres away with a nice river and big fence between you, isn't it? But the last thing you want to do is meet a wild lion, you know, in, in real life, face to face. It will literally devour you. Now, some of the Christians of Peter's day, they may have been worried about being fed to the lions. That did happen to some Christians who dared confess his name. But Peter warns us, there are more deadly lions out there. We have a spiritual foe, a deadly enemy, Satan himself, ready to attack us and to use any means possible to make us give up the Christian life. He loves to see people suffer in the hope that they will give up their Christian faith. Remember what Satan did to Job. All those sufferings in the hope that he would curse God and die. So we must stand firm. We must be alert. Don't give him the opportunity to devour you. Jesus has won the battle. The future is secure. Jesus is with you as you suffer. As you suffer as a Christian, you do it with all your brothers and sisters suffering around the world. Be alert. Be ready. The time to prepare yourself for suffering is before it comes. Watch out. Stand firm. Be ready for the devil's attack when you hit rock bottom. But finally, glory awaits. Yes, suffering now. But glory is the end of the story. Verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember, etch it into your mind. Suffering is just for a little while. It will not last forever. We have eternal glory to look forward to. No more tears, no more pain. God himself will make you strong, firm, and steadfast to get you there. He will see to it personally. This is our comfort and hope. Suffering now. Glory later. So do you see Peter's purpose in writing this letter? I'm writing this to declare, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And that means understanding that suffering is a reality in the Christian life. There is no promise for you that if you follow the Lord Jesus that everything is going to be wonderful. That you'll just enjoy unending health, wealth and prosperity. That is a lie. It's a false message from false teachers who want you to give, you, give them their mon your money so that they can live a prosperous life. That's how it works. At the expense of yours. What's the true grace of God? Suffering now, mocking, rejection, hardship, persecution, discrimination on account of the name of Jesus, but glory, eternal glory to come. So remember this. So that when the trials come, do come, you're not surprised. You don't throw in the towel. You stand firm. It was a joy and delight for, for me yesterday to see all those uh, over 50s uh, lining up there 
for the photon. Uh, you know, those believers, you've been faithful for a very long time. What an encouragement that is. But it doesn't end there. So you've got to get to the photo with the over 80s. <laughs> the 80s plus photo, that was the best one. Maybe longer if the Lord gives you until he calls you home. For most of us, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We need to keep going, the 50s, the 80s, longer, until we reach the crown. Brothers and sisters, remember your identity. You're an elect exile, chosen by God, alien in this world. Remember your future hope, a glorious eternal inheritance. Remember your calling, God's holy people, his royal representatives, making him known in the world. Remember the will of God, suffering now, glory later. This is the true grace of God. I pray that you will stand firm in it, come what may. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your abundant grace that you have poured out on us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving us to be your special people. Thank you for that inheritance to come. And thank you for your grace to see us through times of suffering. We thank you, Lord, that there can be blessing in and through suffering because we know that we are walking that same path that Christ walked of suffering before glory. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be prayerful, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. And indeed, we pray that you'd help us to fix our sights on the glory to come. Help us to stand firm in our faith to the end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.